Hello, you're listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises. My name is Chris Lay, and I am the Podcast Operations Manager for Lee. With Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we are presenting notable true crime stories, as reported by journalists for the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications from around America. For this first series, we took a short drive east of Tulsa, Oklahoma, to learn more about the state's most notorious cold case, the 1977 slaying of three Girl Scouts. This is the seventh episode, and it is the final part of the series, so if it is your entry to the show, you should probably head back to episode one and start from the beginning. Previous episodes have focused on a series of articles written by Tulsa World journalist Tim Stanley that were published in 2017 to mark the 40th anniversary of the tragedy. This episode is going to be a bit of a capstone to the installments that came earlier, and we're going to focus solely on a conversation between myself and Tim. We're going to touch on some of the bits that didn't make it into the articles, but most importantly, we get into the larger takeaways from the crime, the trial, and the ways that the community has been affected over these past four decades. Before we get much further, I wanted to say that if you have enjoyed the show, it is all thanks to the hard work of journalists and editors working in regional newspapers. So please take some time and look into supporting your local print newspaper, especially if it's the Tulsa world, if you don't already. Now it might go without saying, but given the subject matter here and every story that we're going to document going forward, there are some obvious content warnings to impart. Everything here will be fit to print in a newspaper, but parents are still cautioned to give the episode a listen before sharing this with any youngsters. For now, though, here is the episode. I think for starters, Chris, you know, whatever we decide, you or I or anyone else, our listeners or or people who followed this case, you know, whatever we decide, really, there are only a, a couple of options. And, you know, number one, you know, Hart did this either alone or with someone or or number two, he was the victim of a conspiracy and not just a simple conspiracy. Uh, it would have to be a multi-agency one. I mean, there's really two. Actually, there would be, I guess, a, a third unlikely option, and, and that would be that, that Hart did this and he was still a victim of a conspiracy which, you know, it's happened. I mean, uh, where, you know, law enforcement agencies were so certain that they had their right guy. Um, and they did, in fact, have the right guy, as it would turn out. But they, they still tried to, to fabricate evidence and, and do some things to ensure a conviction. Yeah, that has happened before. So I guess you could say that there would that would be a possible third position here. But either way, with that one or, or you know, the the other one in which Hart is innocent, we're talking about, you know, a conspiracy and conspiracies do, they make for good stories, don't they? I mean, everybody loves a good conspiracy theory. Online forums are are almost fueled by them. You know, there is a classic problem though with conspiracies. And I think you and I have talked about this and, and that is that, I mean, they don't hold together. I mean, once you get, once you're talking about a conspiracy with more than a couple of people, once you start adding people to the equation, the likelihood, and in fact, you could say almost certitude that that conspiracy is going to unravel is, is just uh, the odds of that just go up because people talk. And I think the more time that has passed in this case, because now we're talking 40 plus years, the more time that has passed make the possibility of a conspiracy here all the more unlikely. Because, you know, to our knowledge, no one has come forward uh, or or proffered a, you know, so-called deathbed confession that we know of that, yeah, I was involved in this and we did this. And I mean, you would have to say it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty good conspiracy. I mean, a very successful one, although it didn't get the, it wasn't successful in the sense that uh, it got uh, the results they saw in court, but um, the fact that, you know, it's uh, held together and, and no one has come forward, if that were the case, which I don't think it is, you know, that would be a, a pretty solid conspiracy. But I mean, in my opinion, we're talking 40 plus years again, and, and it's like we talked about the evidence 
that um, the jurors would have had presented to them. And we talked about, you know, their decision and, and what we thought about that. And, and I, you know, I've expressed that I don't think we can judge the jury. I don't think that's fair. I think that, you know, the case against Hart has gotten stronger in the 40 years since. When you, you add to it uh, the partial DNA profile that did come out, you know, in the late 80s that did, to the extent there was uh, a profile there, it did match him. And then you have this continuing lack of almost any what we would call exculpatory evidence. And that means anything that would point away from him. And what it comes down to, I think, is this, for whichever way you decide to go in this case. I heard another prosecutor in, in a different case put it this way, and it was, it was another murder trial, and it was one that was built on circumstantial evidence. And this prosecutor, as he was, uh, as he was talking to the jury and making his closing arguments, he said to this jury, he said, you know, with so many things pointing to this defendant, for him to be innocent, he would have to be the unluckiest man on the face of the earth. And, you know, of course, what he's, that prosecutor was suggesting to that jury was that, hey, nobody can be that unlucky. Therefore, this person has to be guilty, so please return a guilty verdict. And in that case, he, he got the guilty verdict. That's a different case, but I think that particular way of looking at it and looking at the circumstantial evidence has application here, because we would have to acknowledge in this case for Hart to be innocent, you know, he would have to be an incredibly unlucky man. And to be fair, there are people who say that about uh, Gene Hart. Uh, they will say he was unlucky from the day he was born. And, um, you know, with the brief exception of a few years of football glory, you know, in high school that uh, nothing ever went right for him. And, um, you know, he was targeted from law enforcement uh, from an early age. And uh, so that he was just, he was unlucky. I mean, there are people who believe that. I, I think what we should do is, is just kind of go back over this circumstantial case and just break it down very briefly. Because, I mean, he would have to have been, we, we're talking about some very, very unlucky coincidences if he is, in fact, innocent. I mean, let's start with his former boyhood home site was not far away in the same woods. And the structure did not exist anymore, but he, he was known to use a former root cellar there, as well as some caves in the vicinity of the camp as places to stay and hide. I mean, this is beyond dispute. I mean, it's been clearly established. He, he, that this was his area, and he used several of these locations around there as, as places to hole up and, and to hide while he was, you know, he also, I mean, he had a history of sexual violence. Now, people will say, you know, yes, but it wasn't against children. But as history has shown in other cases, you know, offenders do evolve in their MOs and victim types. I mean, that's that's not unusual. You know, there's also evidence, you know, that if accepted at face value, would put Gene Hart on site in the camp within hours of the crimes. Specifically, you know, those are items that were taken from two of the camp counselors that, that were later recovered. One of them is at one of the cave sites and then also from the cabin, you know, where he was captured. So the only way he could have had access or would have taken those is, is if he had been in the camp within the time that the counselors had arrived, which was just, you know, the day previous uh, to the events that we're describing. So there's that. You've also got the biological and trace evidence from the victims recovered from the scene. I mean, these include uh, sperm, uh, hair samples, uh, the blood type as determined from the sperm, and none of these could rule hard out. You mentioned in one of the you know additional elements on TulsaWorld.com that the the hair samples were ruled at some point, uh, not not admissible, but fallible, I believe, or just like the, the, the concept of, of hair samples in general. The way that we classify hair as evidence has changed, and it's, it's been fairly recently. And, uh, you know, at one time, and this would have been true in this case, they made some claims about the hair 
that simply, you know, could not be supported by what we now know. I think what what they would have what they did at the time in this case and a lot of other cases nationwide this was this was a uh, widespread problem is they they would bring in experts who would be able to or at least try to claim that you could look at a piece of hair a sample of hair and say definitively that that sample of hair came from a certain person's head definitively now what we now know is you just can't make that claim the best you can do is say that a sample of hair is consistent with a specific head of hair, but it could be consistent with others. It still ultimately ends up being practically, you know, circumstantial. It's definitely circumstantial, but hair still has value. And, and here's what it is. I mean, hair could rule somebody out. Let's say you, the hair you recovered was a red hair or a blonde hair. Your suspect has dark hair. You could pretty conclusively say that that hair did not come from the suspect. But what you've got here, I think, um, even though the hair in the heart case would not carry the same value today that they put on it at the time, it's another one of those little things that could have ruled him out but it can't because the hair is at least on the face of it, at least to the human eye, consistent with his hair. What they were doing for years in this and other cases is they were basically making more out of hair than they had a right to make. But we've come to understand it better. And, um, you know, the real value of hair these days, I mean, especially if you can get DNA from it, if you've got enough of a root um, that you might be able to get skin cells that's not the case here, but um, so hair certainly it's it still has value, uh, but our understanding of it has changed in the last few years, at least you know as far as what investigators were claiming at one time that you could do with it. Um, it's just you can't do that with hair, but you can use it to uh, rule somebody out or at least point in another direction. Again, if it was a, clearly a different color, you know, from the suspects. Um, then that might be a good sign that uh, you want to look somewhere else, you know. You talked earlier about the lack of exculpatory evidence, and this definitely falls into that category. It is. It's one more thing, you know, that that could have at least raised questions, you know, could have at least pointed uh, or suggested that maybe someone else was involved and that Hart was not the guy. But I mean, again, you go down each one of these boxes and you just can't uh, you can't ever rule him out or or find anything that would point elsewhere. We're talking about what was presented, you know, at the trial. I mean, but you take that evidence and then you add in later from the biological evidence, they were able to develop a partial DNA profile that, again, this was something that could have ruled him out. And yet again, we find that it, we can't do that. In fact, what they said was the DNA matched him. Again, it was ruled inconclusive because it was only a partial profile. But they said the odds of it matching anyone, it was, I think the, the ratio was one in 7,700 Native American men would, you know, match that hair. Now, what does that mean? What does that, what does that look like? Well, I, I can say currently in the state of Oklahoma, uh, there are about 150,000 Native American males that live in this state. I don't know what the number would have been at the time, but, you know, just for thought purposes, you know, one in 7,700, uh, that would be roughly 19 um, out of the current population of 150,000. But that's 19 people statewide that could match. Now, that one area, you know, Mays County, you know, where the crimes happened, um, I who could say, but it would be somewhere maybe a couple tops and it did match hearts. So again, we're back to, you know, how unlucky would you have to be, you know, with every one of these things, any one of which could have pointed elsewhere, but they, they don't, they keep pointing at you um, or at least in your general direction. And so you add all of that up. So that's, you know, when I say, the case has only gotten stronger, you know, that's because we were talking about the jury. And again, I want to 
reiterate, I, I don't think any of this means that the jury should be criticized for their verdict to acquit. There are a couple of these things that they would not have even had access to. Number one, the DNA, that was, that was still years away. They also didn't know about his exact criminal history. Now, you and I have talked a little bit about how they may have at least picked up on the fact that he was in prison for something, but they wouldn't have known specifically that it was for rapes. So again, that, you know, that's just something we add to the total circumstantial case as we look at it now. Yeah. But there are things that the jury would not have known. And, you know, it's possible that, you know, the prosecution just didn't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that ultimately is what I, you know, have kept coming back to is the, the fact that, yeah, they, they just did not do as good a job at going beyond a reasonable doubt. And I mean, I know you know, their, their hands were tied as far as what evidence they had. One thing that came up, another one of the things that I, I read uh, online that I don't think has come up in any of the articles, the, the six articles that we have, is the, the flashlight that was found. You know, the flashlight may well have been, you know, the one mistake that the offender made. You know, it was left at the scene, very near um, to where the bodies were were dumped off of the main trail there. Um, and the flashlight was recovered from very near there. It, it makes you think um, the offender or offenders um, were alarmed. Something caused them to feel like they needed to hurry. While we don't know the exact time of death, I mean, it is possible that, you know, that the murders happened shortly before sunrise. It's possible that they might have heard an alarm clock. Um, I say they, he, he or they might have heard an alarm clock from the camp, something that, that uh, gave um, him a reason to, uh, to feel like he needed to flee. And for whatever reason, he forgot the flashlight. A couple of things about it. Uh, yeah, I, it was used as evidence at the trial because the, the flashlight had, and I haven't seen it, so I can only describe describe it how it was described, but it had been modified in a very special way so that uh, it only emitted a very, very thin sliver of light. So, I mean, the assumption is whoever modified it, you know, wanted to be able to have just enough light to see, but not enough light that he would risk being seen by somebody else. In other words, he could move about in the darkness relatively risk-free, but still have at least enough light to, to see what he was doing. Now, the significance of that is they did, uh, there was an associate of Hearts um, who knew him from prison and who had been involved, I think, in, in some criminal activity with him that did testify that, that Gene Hart was known to modify his flashlights that way. It's not exactly a fingerprint, but I mean, it could be looked at as such. If I mean, because it sounds like it was a very unique modification. Um, There's just a mound of of this very specific yet yet still circumstantial evidence that is just piled up against him. Any one of these things by itself is meaningless. I mean, it really doesn't uh, get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. But it's it's I guess what we could call the totality of it. How unlucky would you have to be? Um, to have all of these things, the weight of it, and all of it uh, coming down on you. Honestly, it's difficult to see how he could not have been involved. Now, you know, I will say, and and this is something that's come up and something we should probably at least address, Chris, and that's, okay, so maybe Hart was involved, but what about, you know, additional participants yeah, I was going to ask about uh, about that. You mentioned possible accomplices or, or referred to plural uh, potential offenders, uh, potential suspects earlier. So we can definitely get back to that. I think this it's worth acknowledging. I mean, because a lot of people have looked at how this crime went down and drawn the conclusion that it would just be too difficult to do everything that was done here by yourself. It's it was a complex crime, you know, involving three victims. And, you know, for most a lot of people have just decided, well, there had to be at least two. 
you know, there's some argument to be made for that. Here's here's my my take on it, my two cents. I'm an Occam's razor guy, which is a way of saying the simplest explanation is all things being equal, usually the best one. In other words, don't complicate things unnecessarily. So unless there's, you know, clear evidence for a second or third party in this case, we don't need to assume one. Now, you know, could one person do this? I mean, just having reviewed this, looked at it, I, I would acknowledge it's not easy. It wouldn't be easy, but yes, I think one person could do it. And the people who argue for at least two participants, a lot of times what they point to is uh, the knots that the girl's hands were tied with. You know, they're, they're two different knots. Two of the girls were bound. Um, the third one was not. But the two that were bound uh, were bound by their hands and uh, were t- bound with two different knots. So people would say that suggests at least two people. And I think that's a good point. I mean, I, I mean, you can't just wish that fact away and you need to look at it for what it is. Why would there be two knots? I would suggest this. And um, again, I, you realize or you remember what the conditions are. I mean, we're talking about pitch black, middle of the night. You know, there, there was a flashlight, at least one we know of. Um, so maybe you had a little light from that. Otherwise, though, it's really dark and it's a high pressure situation. You're trying to be quiet. Um, you're trying to do this and not attract attention. Um, there are, you know, tents all around with uh, people sleeping. So you're trying to do this as carefully as possible. I can see how under those circumstances, um, especially given the lack of, of really good light, I can see how under those circumstances, unless you were a professional knot tire and could basically tie knots with your eyes closed, it makes sense to me that you might use different knots. So I don't think, you know, that that evidence alone is enough for me to say definitively that, that there were two people. I, and one other issue is you have to remember on the night and early morning that the crimes happened, there was a, a very heavy thunderstorm that rolled through and, you know, really gave the camp and its environs a good soaking. I mean, this was wet ground. Um, this was a, a busy campground. There were a lot of kids and, and, and many adults. So yeah, there were, there were footprints all over the place. But the thing about it is the spot where the bodies were found was off the trail and it was not in a high traffic area. And I don't think there was any evidence there. I mean, to me, given the situation that you're talking about very wet ground, if you had multiple assailants, I think that would have been clear. Um, I think there would have been a clear indication of that. Um, But there evidently was not, um, you know, that investigators determined. Simplest explanation. I I think uh, this was a this was a a crime that a single offender could could pull off. I don't think mm-hmm. it's easy, but I do think it is worth noting, though. Um, and I think we we did mention this in the story that uh, the prosecutor, uh, Tulsa County prosecutor Buddy Fallis, who's the guy who ended up you know heading the def- or the uh, prosecution in the case. He did acknowledge um, after the trial, and I think he was speaking uh, to a group in Tulsa, um, he did acknowledge that it was distinctly possible that two people were involved. I don't think anyone on the state's side had acknowledged that possibility previously. So I think that he did, the fact that he did say that, I mean, that is worth noting. So yeah, it's, it's something that we just can't say anything conclusively about. Yeah. One of the one of the questions that we got that dovetails nicely from this line of conversation is uh, somebody said that they heard that female DNA was found and also that Sherry Farmer uh, always felt like a woman was involved in the crime. Do you know uh, where, where where Sherry Farmer stood on that? Or, and, and do you have any information about the the female DNA that that she's mentioning? Yeah, we can we can talk about that. Yeah. And as we've stated previously, you know, there uh, for listeners, there have been a number of DNA tests over the years, starting from when DNA was still in its infancy uh, in the late 80s. And, um, you know, every few years, they it seems like they would do some DNA testing in this case. Uh, The DNA that 
that is being referenced here was from a sample that was processed, I believe, in 2008 or 09. They did find, you know, what they determined to be female DNA in this sample. It's not clear, you know, where the sample was recovered from. I mean, whether it was from the bodies, from the scene. But apparently, you know, this was viewed as of limited value um, by investigators because you got to think about the setting again. I mean, this was, uh, you had dozens of female campers there that weekend. You had a number of, of female adults there in counseling and other capacities. I mean, there were a lot of, you know, potential sources of that DNA, you know, within the camp proper. Mm -hmm. And it's it's just hard to say, you know, what the circumstances of that DNA being put, what, you know, was it deposited during the commission of the crime or what, uh, you know, what could that even be determined? All we know is that a test did, you know, register as female. You know, what do, what do you do with that? Here's a couple of things that we can be clear on. And that is, I mean, it is it's almost, I mean, it's indisputable that the primary offender in these crimes was male. Um, so that, that part, you know, is really beyond dispute. So the question would be, what does the, the female DNA mean? I mean, does it mean anything? And I mean, if it does, I mean, was that a, was the female a possible, you know, accomplice um, since, you know, the, the other evidence makes it clear that, you know, the primary offender was male it's a, impossible to say. It's a little. It's a little bit of a mystery. I do think that uh, you know. Again, because of the setting and because of the number of possible female sources who may not have had anything to do with the crime itself, they were just you know at the setting and whatever it was may have left their DNA. It's just really hard to 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 really do anything with that. Um, but you know, it is a fact. It did. They did turn that up. As far as Sherry, I uh, I don't remember her ever saying that to me. My take on, you know, both her her and Bo, her husband, Bo Farmer, uh, you know, based on on our interviews, they I think they both are pretty confident that that Gene Hart was guilty, but I do think their levels of confidence are a little different. I think for Bo. Based on my recollections, he is a doctor and still is, still practicing. Um, but, uh, I mean, he has a lot of medical knowledge. And for him, the medical case against Hart uh, was just very, very strong. He can't get past this, the lack, complete lack of exculpatory evidence. So I think for Bo, he, he was still absolutely convinced that Hart, I think Sherry is a little more open-minded. Again, this is based on my recollections these are not things that that actually entered into the stories but we did things we did discuss i think she still believes it's hard but i think she's open to other possibilities and um, i think that's probably a, a position she's just had to take over the years as it has become more evident that they may never get answers here i just think that's maybe a position she's had to take just to keep moving and keep going forward and uh, I think she was also open to the possibility that it could have been more, more than one person involved. But she did not specifically ever say to me in any conversations that we had that she thought that there might have been a female. But I can't say that she hasn't said that in other contexts, that she may have. I had a couple other things here. I thought, you know, we may as well mention a couple of things about other suspects. I know we've mentioned a couple of others uh, in passing. Let's say this up front. I mean, to date, you know, Gene Leroy Hart, you know, remains the only suspect ever officially named by authorities. But there have been other names, you know, that have been thrown out there in different contexts and by different parties. And uh, one of those um, who we have mentioned um, in the context of the trial was a guy named Bill Stevens. At this date in time, Bill Stevens does not seem like a credible option, but we can talk about how his name came up. Um, he was a guy who had ties to the area, um, but at the time of the trial, of the Hart trial, uh, Bill Stevens was 
um, serving time in Kansas on a rape conviction. And how his name got entered into this case was he had a cellmate, a guy named Dwayne Peters, who would claim that um, Bill Stevens confessed to him. Not only that, Peters, Dwayne Peters, this cellmate, had a, a girlfriend uh, or some sources she's referred to as a common law wife. Uh, her name was Joyce Payne. She made the additional claim um, that Stevens actually showed up at her place um, the morning after the crimes and he was covered with blood. And uh, hmm. she testified to this fact um, at the Hart trial, which, I mean, on the face of it, sounds very compelling if, if that's accurate. But, you know, they did, they did check out Stevens. In fact, the authorities, I think Peters had already given his name to authorities before the trial, um, if I recall correctly, and they had checked out Stevens. And what they had determined was that, well, it would have been very difficult for him to be in that area uh, when the crimes were committed. Um, he was uh, on a work site in, well, they had a time card and paycheck stub that showed that Stevens was actually on a work site in Seminole. Now, that would be about two and a half hours away uh, the morning of the crime. So uh, if the murders were committed, you know, at 4 or 5 a.m. on that Monday morning, you know, Stevens would have been on a work site at roughly 7 a.m., you know, two and a half hours away. And that's not impossible. He would have had to jump in his vehicle and basically go from one place to the other that does seem to make him not likely. But the real the real uh, killing stroke, I would say, for the, the Stevens theory was that Dwayne Peters, the cellmate who initiated all of this, later admitted that he and his wife, uh, common law wife, Joyce Payne, he admitted that they had made up the story. And uh, the goal was to uh, get him a pardon. Um, he hoped to kind of work the situation uh, to his own advantage as it would turn out, of course, as you might imagine, uh, the authorities did not take too kindly uh, to Joyce Payne's testimony <laughs> in the Hart trial. They, they subsequently charged her with perjury. She eventually would plead guilty uh, to a reduced charge. But knowing what we know now, especially with uh, Dwayne Peters claiming that ultimately they did make that story up, uh, Stevens just doesn't seem like a likely candidate at the time. You know, clearly he was useful to the defense. And I mean, they really needed in their case, you know, as we discussed, they needed to propose an alternative suspect. And so he kind of fit the bill for that. But more evidence has come to light after that, that, that make it very unlikely, you know, that Bill Stevens was involved, although, you know, he you know, apparently was not a, a good guy and, was uh, convicted of rape in a different setting. but So that's the deal with Bill Stevens and did definitely think that we needed to, uh, to mention him since he was, you know, um, kind of featured in the trial. And, you know, I will say, as far as other, other names, there have been over the years, there have been, um, especially, you know, among online sleuths, people who followed the case, there have been names of other individuals from that area, from Mays County, specifically the Locust Grove area that people have put forward um, as, you know, possible suspects. And I'm not going to name any of these people, um, but, you know, if it's easy enough to go on, on online and, and dig into this if you're interested. I think principally uh, some of these other people have been proposed more than anything because they had a criminal history that suggests, you know, they might be capable of such a crime. Um, the problem, I think, with any of these individuals, there's just nothing that would put them at or near the scene, which means that, you know, for Gene Hart, he still has to rank as suspect number one simply for that fact alone. We have things that put him near the scene, and we also have, you know, the partial DNA profile that did match him. But you know, just I thought it's worth mentioning that, uh, you know, there have been a lot of other names. I mean, the rumor mill um, is going to grind on. Not to say that, uh, you know, there aren't other people that have been mentioned that might be capable of this. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there are some people out there who've done some pretty bad things, you know, so that's possible. 
this might be a little bit off off topic, but do you know if their, you know, law enforcement ever explored any, you know, similar crimes that, that might have happened, you know, in various other states? Or is, does this possibly match any, you know, national MO of, of anyone else? Uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, that that was looked at. I can't say any other cases specifically that this one, you know, might have been looked at as at least similar MOs. This one, I mean, this is pretty unique. I mean, it's, you know, given the setting and um, the situation, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to find parallel crimes. I, you know, I will say this, another name that has been floated, you know, possible connection with this case. And, and the only reason I'm going to mention this one is because it's a big name and it's been the subject of some recent publicity. And, and we were talking about national, and this from a national scope. Well, there's a serial killer uh, you may, may be familiar with by the name of Henry Lee Lucas. Um, he was a serial killer operating out of Texas. And he was a subject of uh, a recent Netflix docuseries called The Confession Killer, which is out there for anyone who wants to check it out. His name has been thrown up, or at least it was at one time, as a possibility that people ought to look at in this case. I, I will say there's never been a credible link. Now, he was active during that time. Um, I think he was eventually uh, apprehended in 1983. Um, so in the late 70s was when he was doing his alleged crimes. But it, what we have since learned about Henry Lee Lucas, and it's something that the, the docuseries, you know, emphasizes that now at one time he was believed to be the most prolific serial murder in history. And it was because he confessed, hence the name Confession Killer, because he confessed to literally hundreds of murders but what we now know is that the vast majority of these were bogus confessions. I think, you know, maybe three killings um, attributed to him have actually been confirmed. I think that's the right number. It seems like what the situation was, um, and, you know, as the documentary uh, presents it, this he was essentially a, a loser. He was really an import, unimportant guy who suddenly found himself in the limelight. Um, he felt important. And so he kept on spinning tails. And unfortunately, uh, there were a lot of in law enforcement who were all too willing to listen because it helped them close cases. But at one time, you know, when he was believed to be actually connected to all these cases, you know, bringing up his name in this case would have made more sense. Uh, but knowing what we now know uh, about all the bogus confessions, uh, that just seems, you know, really unlikely that he was in any way involved in this. So... So there's that. Uh, I thought I'd mentioned Henry Lee Lucas, um, but uh, odds of that, yeah, being involved here are almost nil, I would say. I guess kind of winding down a little bit, my main takeaway from all of this is just the incredible frustration of not knowing, but also being able to see all the various ways that the case was prosecuted and covered and, and even, you know, defended, you know, both sides, I think, you know, made a lot of errors, which in, in the defense's case, the errors that were made ended up benefiting them. It seems so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's just a lot of questions about the way that things were consistently applied. And obviously there's the gaps in, in the, the science, uh, which, you know, would have changed things now. No, that's worth, I mean, I think you're right. And that's worth probably underscoring is um, in some ways, this case was a victim of the times and the technology that was available. Not that I, I don't think it was a winnable case. I mean, I think it could have been, um, but if this were to happen now, you know, the chances of, of the perpetrator getting away with it, I would say would be very, very limited. Mm -hmm. The nature of this crime. It was just so horrible and so violent. I mean, there would just have to be, you would think, a lot of biological evidence, a lot of evidence that, that they could very quickly turn around and maybe put a name on the person. It just, it would be a different case now. 
undoubtedly. But you know what? You could say that about a lot of cases. Yeah. I mean, technology has changed everything, turned it on its head. So that that wouldn't be just true for this case. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the the other the the separate you know different uh, court case where where the one you know lawyer was talking to the jury and saying this man must have been you know, the, the unluckiest man alive to have been for him to be innocent. Yeah. With all of these things pointing him, he would have to be the unluckiest man on the face of the earth. I'd never forgotten that. And it was only recently as I was kind of reviewing this one that I thought, well, you know, that could be, you could say that very same thing here with just the, uh, all of this circumstantial evidence. Again, you know what he could be Gene Hart could just be unlucky. I mean, but he would be very singular in that. I mean, he would have to be yeah, one of the most unlucky people who ever lived, if you if you want to think of it in those terms. And at the same time, I mean, to to a degree, he's also, I think, you know, one of the the luckiest. I mean, in depending on how you look at it, yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, if if he did do it and you know, the court obviously, you know, said that he didn't or that he was was not guilty. I mean, there's still just a lot of the steps along the path to where he ended up, it's profoundly unlucky, you know, potentially for him to have gotten to where he was, but at the same time for him to have been, to get that not guilty verdict, uh, if, if he did it is just still very, very random. And I mean, yeah, when you talk about the, the different kinds of knots and everything, I mean, there, there's so much that is very premeditated about the actual crime. Yeah. But there's also with, with the, the flashlight, but there's also so much that that seems very chaotic and unplanned. I mean, the fact that the flashlight was left, the you know, the like you said, the difference of the knots, but also the fact that, you know, they were these very specific kinds of knots. And I mean, both the, the crime and the everything around it afterwards between the, the national and international media coverage and the, the whole court you know, fiasco in general, it seems like it's just a combination of the smartest and stupidest thing to ever (laughs) just, you know, really traumatize this, this community and, and these, you know, families and the, you know, the region. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's so much to, to wrap your head around. People ask me, you know, what, what are my takeaways? You know, at the time, and I, I think I don't think this has changed for me, even in, in revisiting the stories, you know, from three years ago for this project, I still come away with, with two seems like very contradictory emotions, you know, when it comes to this the Girl Scout murders case. And those are haunted and hopeful. And you know, the one haunted I I I was and I still am haunted really to my core by the details of this case. I mean, how could such a thing happen? I don't think it's possible to not be haunted by this. And, I, you know, thinking about, I want to reference another infamous Oklahoma crime, and that was the Oklahoma City bombing. And I know a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the details of that. But mm-hmm. you know, the bomber, Timothy McVeigh, uh, 1995, you know, uh, blew up the... Uh, Murrow building, federal building in uh, Oklahoma City, killed 168 people. Well, there was, uh, you know, there were a lot of children among those victims because there was a daycare in that building. And yeah. I remember, and a lot of people will remember this, but he was asked, McVeigh was asked, you know, why did you do it? Why did you pick that target knowing that there were children in there? Because he had cased it. He knew there was a daycare in there. And his response is really was chilling. It was in very matter of fact, and it was just that they were collateral damage was his phrase. In other words, you know, they weren't the point, but they were necessary to his larger end, which was a political one. What this, this case, the Girl Scout murders flips that because the children were the point. They were the targets. Now, not these specific girls, children themselves. I mean, because this offender, you know, wasn't out to make some political point. I mean, these children, these girls were the objects, you know, of some, I think, twisted desire. Um, The offender saw an opportunity to gain access to vulnerable children in a setting that he believed he could exploit. You know, it's something about that 
that is just that haunts me. I don't think we can help but be haunted by crimes against children, you know, where children are targeted. Certainly. And but at the same time, like I said, I feel I felt and and that has this has not changed in three years. I still feel hopeful and hopeful is because, you know, of the example of the victim's families and how, you know, despite no final answer or justice um, and a good chance that they might not ever get one, how, how despite that they have gone on to live their lives um, and, and taken this tragedy and they've uh, kind of fashioned some kind of workable good out of it. And, and a good that is, I think, unique to each of them. I mean, we know it's well documented. We know from other cases um, that the loss of a child, especially to violence, can destroy families. I mean, that's no secret. It breaks up marriages. Uh, people destroy themselves. Alcoholism um, is prevalent. You know, that didn't happen here. And I think that's something that's worth noting. And I'm glad we were able to do that. And I don't think there's an, uh, one exact reason why that is. And I, again, I think each of those families is unique and they each had to find their own way through this, but they did to the extent that that's possible, you know? Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, that's kind of where I am. I still feel haunted. I still feel hopeful. I think, you know, at the end of the day, this story affirms in the strongest possible way that, that evil is real. I mean, it, evil is a fact of this life. But I, I think at the same time, you know, just because evil is real, it doesn't mean it has to have the final say. And I think that mm -hmm. that's my takeaway from this. That to me is the real story now. And that's a story that, you know, up until now has not been told. And that's because it really couldn't be. It's, these outcomes require time and they, they require perspective. And for us, you know, at the, at the paper, the 40 year anniversary seems to have been, you know, the right time to tell the story because some of the healing and growing that we talk about had only occurred very recently in the scheme of this. I mean, we, we were talking about within two or three years that, you know, some of the things that happened had been able to happen and, and people have been able to move forward. So, I think the timing was right and um, you know, I'm glad that we were able to do it and I'm glad we were able to uh, bring it to uh, listeners through this podcast, uh, through a, a different medium. And I hope they find it meaningful. But to echo, you know, what you said, I mean, I know a lot of people, part of the thrill, I guess, of the true crime podcasts and documentaries and whatnot is people going in and, relitigating you know these nuts and bolts and various odds and ends with this i mean it's just you th this specific case offers up a lot of that but it's still no matter how you slice it it's still going to end up having this ambiguous element to it as far as the actual what do we know for sure capital k knowledge what kind of of truth can can we absolutely ascertain from the evidence that we have until science, you know, comes in, in in some form or other. But to echo what you're saying, the real takeaway is the hope. It is the optimism. It is the fact that every single person who was touched negatively by this and, you know, some in, in the most profound, horrific ways uh, have managed to not only survive, but thrive and turn the things that, that happened to them and, and, and their, their children, they have, you know, turned that into something that has been a, a beacon for, for other people, uh, either in similar situations or, or just in general. And like you said, I mean, there really is, there's a lot of very negative responses that, that people can have to this, which are all, you know, understandable under, uh, you know, the, the circumstances, but the ultimate result of this being as, as positive as, as it was, is, is really, uh, affirming. Yeah. Very well said. I don't think there are happy endings in cases like this. I mean, if you're looking for a happy ending, 
um, you won't find that. What you will find, I think, is a hopeful ending. And um, that's different, but uh, that's not a bad thing. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot that, that we can take away from this and learn from. And, you know, hopefully the unthinkable never happens for any of us. But the reality is for somebody who's listening to this, I mean, it's just the odds are that sooner or later in your life, I mean, you may experience something like this. And I think uh, to have uh, the story of these families and, and the other people, I think uh, hopefully can be helpful to, to other people uh, going forward. Just to know that if you find yourself in, in a situation like this, you know, if you're a, a victim, if you've lost a, a family member to, to violence or a crime and you haven't gotten the answers you want or the justice, uh, I think hopefully it's helpful to know that you're not alone. And um, there are people who have, have been down that road, a very dark road, but uh, that can tell you that there is light ultimately. And um, even if, and God forbid, but even if you never get a final answer, I, I haven't been in that situation, Chris. I hope you haven't. And I, I hope nobody listening to this ever is. But again, the reality is the world being what it is, some of us are going to find ourselves there. And I just uh, I hope they can take something away from this that might be helpful to them in that if, if and when that time does happen in their lives. Yeah. I did not expect to come away from this having, you know, a certain amount of, of my faith in, in humanity, you know, restored, I guess. <laughs> if that's not too, too hyperbolic to, to throw out there. No, I, I, um, I think that's a, that's a good takeaway, Chris. And I, uh, yeah, I hope, uh, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if that's what I expected either, you know, going into this when we did it. In fact, I'm pretty sure it wasn't, but, uh, that, that, uh, was probably a, a takeaway for me as well. Um, just, uh, that's encouraging. Well, I um, just want to say thank you, you know, so much, Tim, for for the work that you and and, and your your editors at, at the Tulsa World, uh, you know, put together with this this series back in 2017. And uh, obviously, you know, you're you know standing on the shoulders of the the journalists who covered the story in 1977, and the many years after that, uh, all the follow ups. So, um, just uh, really appreciate that. Chris, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. We just wrapped up the Girl Scout Murder series. The six articles written in 2017 by Tim Stanley for the Tulsa World can be found at tulsaworld.com, presented with incredible new photos alongside images from the newspaper's archives, and if you made it this far without checking those out, you really should. There will be links to those and any other relevant content in the show notes. We're going to take a few weeks off, but make sure that you are subscribed to the show wherever you listen to your podcast, because the next season will focus on the story of an Omaha doctor who turned serial killer following a years-long revenge plot. The show was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Chris Lay, with tremendous thanks to Tim Stanley and the rest of the team at the Tulsa World for the work they put in reporting the series in 2007. For Lee Enterprises, I'm Chris Lay. <laughs>